Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today, and I just learned on Twitter that some listeners like this formula, and I don't really need to change it up. We'll hear from Heather Berg, author of the book Porn Work, about laboring in that field, and then from Kevin Young and Leonard Seabrook, co-authors of a paper on the contrasting organizational styles of the Chicago free marketeer and Cambridge, Massachusetts centrist Keynesian schools of economic thought. Most analyses of sex work study it from the consumption side, how viewers and customers experience the product, what it does to us as a society, or how it affects individuals' views of human relations. Here's a different perspective from Heather Berg, Assistant Professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Washington University in St. Louis, and author of the book Porn Work, published by the University of North Carolina Press. It's not screamingly new, it was published a year ago, but hey, we're not hung up on commercial norms here on Behind the News. Berg looks at the people who make porn, how workers see their work, and how they fight to maximize their control over their conditions of labor. How much of an escape from the world of wage labor is it? How free or unfree do the performers feel? How is the transformation of the industry from the era of blurry stag films to today's DIY world of only fans affected the people who make it? Heather Berg. Reading your book reminded me of an old friend of mine on first hearing the term culture workers, snarling, we got into culture so we didn't have to work. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> is porn something like that? Yeah, I love that. Um, I think I think it really can be. Folks get into porn often so they don't have to work and often find a lot of work on the other side. But one of the things I'm trying to hold on to in the book is that that, that initial refusal still matters. Most writing on porn and a lot of you know, stuff on sex work generally has focused on the consumption side, you know, the effects on those who watch it, what does it mean for human relations, those sorts of things. But you're looking at, uh, to use the Marxist terminology, <laughs> relations of production, uh, boss yeah. worker, conditions of labor, things like that. Why do you think there's so little attention paid to um, the people who actually produce the stuff? Yeah, um, I think you know part of it, and this is something that I started to do as I, I got deeper into the research, is to read writing on porn, whether it be academic or journalistic, then kind of get clues as to whether the author imagined themselves more as a consumer or as a worker. Part of this is about sex work stigma and also about how hard it is for sex workers to gain footing in the academy. But so often you can read this work and get a pretty clear idea that, yeah, that the author imagined themselves in the the position of, of either primary consumers, so people who watch porn or what we might call secondary ones. So Often, you know, anti-porn feminists imagine themselves there, people who will be impacted because other wa- others watch porn. But not much interest in the workers. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Part of that is the, the old questions about reification, but I do think a lot of it has to do with the, the class locations of the people who write in the first place. They're much more comfortable with consuming than producing or don't see themselves as producers. Right. Yeah. Early on in the book, you quote Silvia Federici saying that independent sex work is a problem for capitalism because it evades the wage relation. To a lot of people, anti-porn feminists, uh, Christian moralists, whatever, see it as deeply exploitative, quite the opposite of uh, evading the wage relation. How do you reconcile those points of view? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I might turn the question back on them and ask, how they reconcile a nominally anti-capitalist position with imagining that some forms of work are less exploitative uh, because they're not stigmatized. So I think that's that's really my interest in that question is, um, is where that's coming from, why it is that so many people who call themselves anti-capitalists and leftists still hold on to the idea that sex work is uniquely and singularly exploitative any of us on the left should know that, that that is the nature of work, frankly, whether or not it's waged. Um, and Federici also says that even work that is outside the wage is a site of exploitation. Sex worker leftists have often made the argument that the state is the pimp in that case or the boss. And so I think all of that matters. I'm not saying that this is outside of capitalism, but it can be outside the wage. And that, that makes a material difference in people's everyday lives. Now, the industry is really... Uh undergone very major transformations over the decades in its uh, economic model. 
going back to the early days of film, there were stag films, very anonymous. Uh, you barely saw the faces of the actors, certainly no personalities or stars. Then we had that moment in the 70s when uh, porn went mainstream. People learned the names Linda Lovelace, Harry Reams. The industry developed kinds of stars. And now we're in this world of only fans and Pornhub, which is to some degree do-it-yourself stuff. Uh, yeah, so could you talk about the evolution of the industrial model of porn over the years? The biggest piece um, that I'm interested in is thinking about that evolution through the lens of workers' struggles, again, to free themselves from managerial control. So what that's looked like, and, and here there's a really an important difference in comparison to other platform labors where porn's evolution to the platform isn't coming from tech disruptors from the top down. It's not app developers figuring out how to better disrupt real estate markets or rideshare companies, things like that. Instead, it's it's been workers who have been figuring out really creative and smart ways to subvert, again, the wage relation, to subvert the dynamics in which directors and producers used to maintain copyright and the sole ability to to cut up scenes in, into little pieces to resell them in perpetuity while only having paid performers a day rate. So sex workers have, have figured out how to subvert that, how to gain more control over their everyday lives, um, over working conditions, but also over pay. And that is really the story of the transition from the studio model to OnlyFans in particular. And it also has its, its beginnings in the, the earlier moments that you mentioned, where we have, you know, under what, what you talked about it's in the 1970s, we have what folks call the golden era. But even in those moments, people were trying to self-produce. It was just harder because technologies for production were so much more expensive and the mechanisms of distribution were a lot less democratic. So this, this historical move has been a move to greater autonomy in some ways, and then also lessened autonomy in others, particularly as porn workers navigate increasing state regulations, uh, particularly around their ability to get paid through payment processors. That's my quick answer. Okay, let's talk some about the work site. And of course, there are many different kinds of work sites. So there's an array, an array of um, different experiences here. But what about the balance between consent and coercion? I think to a lot of critics of the industry, it's just nothing but coercion, either you know directly on the set or broader economic coercion. How much consent is there involved in the production? It depends on the production model. So when people are self-producing, of course, then the dynamics of consent are really about what Marx called the, the dull compulsion of the wage. And that's the story in much studio work too. And in that, the, the ways that, that life under capitalism undermines consent are not different from folks working in retail or the grocery store, secretarial work, healthcare, teaching, the kinds of jobs that a lot of foreign workers left before they came to the industry. So I'm really interested in why so many commentators fixate on a, on a lack of consent in this context. I think there's a lot to say about whether sex makes things different. And I really refuse to come down on one side or the other on that in the book, because for some workers, it does. For some, the dull compulsion of the wage in the sex work context does feel more compelling. Um, and for others, you know, a lot of people in the book talk about the ways that this, this feels less, not just less exploitative sometimes, but also that they have more control and more ability to maneuver around consent and negotiation than they did in other working class jobs. And what about feelings? Sex, of course, does have some association with human emotions. What are the effects of having sex with people they may or may not like? Um, is it all in a day's work? How do they manage the complexities of the emotions that would arise in the work? Yeah, I think, again, it varies. So for some people, there's a lot of emotion management that's that's required in order to get through a day. Some people talk about, again, I think really creative techniques around temporary disassociation, which, again, from an outside perspective, seems like a terrible tactic to get through your workday, but which is something that that a lot of working class people and you know folks in white collar jobs too um, deploy in order to get through all sorts of circumstances. So I want to be really careful not to be precious around the uniqueness of sex here, and also to acknowledge that for some people it is special. But 
I think one thing that that often gets lost is the reality that for often commentators, primary site of concern here is straight women or at the very least women who do straight sex work. And what a lot of these women will tell you is that being socialized into heterosexuality means already managing your emotions around sex. It means already figuring out how to perform uh, according to markets, uh, paid and otherwise. And so for a lot of people, the only difference when we enter into paid sex is, uh, is that there's money at the end of it. And so the emotion management piece isn't unique here. Yeah, day-to-day life is such a realm of freedom, isn't it? <laughs> um, the money issue is interesting. To anti-porn types, money makes it all bad. But there are countering views. You uh, quote one performer saying it protects boundaries, stays off burnout. Charlotte Shane likes the sex because it brings in cash. How does money um, enter into the, the social relations here? Right. I'm really fascinated by the ways that porn workers, again, especially the straight women or, or women who do straight sex work, talk about money as the thing that makes sex worth it. And in some ways, it's a really fascinating intervention into long running conversations and even radical feminist thought around the kind of thanklessness of straight sex for people. And so I'm, I'm really interested in this moment in contemporary anti-porn feminist thought and anti-sex work feminist thought in general, where the argument seems to be that free sex is better. And I'm fascinated by the ways that in that anti-sex worker feminists match up in their interests exactly with the worst kind of Johns, the worst kinds of porn fans, and also the worst kinds of porn managers in imagining that people shouldn't get paid to do their work. So that's one thing I'll say about the role of money. But yeah, and in a more practical sense, um, negotiation can give folks a lot of room to maneuver around really calculating in a sober way what their boundaries are, um, what pay makes a given encounter feel, again, worth it. And I'm really of the belief that if a lot more straight women did that, sexual relations would improve, not necessarily with money at the end of the day, although sometimes, but to really ask sober questions about, um, about what they're getting from an encounter so that's, that, again, I'm answering that from the perspective of, of straight sex, because that's so often what commentators are interested in when they pose it. Yeah, it's as if uh, people, a lot of people seem to have forgotten critiques of bourgeois marriage that see it as a form of right. prostitution, only legal. <laughs> exactly, right, exactly. Now, what about pleasure or joy in the work? Um, you know, it's not a question one asks of an office worker or a line cook very often, you know, it's, it's just a job. But uh, how about porn? There's certainly at least the appearance of pleasure involved. How do they experience that? Yeah. And I'll say that this was a, an evolution for me in writing the project. I think because of, of my kind of allergy to consumer-focused accounts, I came into the writing process not really wanting to talk so much about the pleasure piece because from what was at the time for me a kind of more orthodox Marxist position, I was thinking of this as not a material concern, as something that was mainly uh, of interest, again, to, to consumers and to folks thinking from that perspective. But porn workers pushed back against that in all sorts of ways and invited me to listen in ways that I'm really grateful for. And so there are a couple of things I'll note. One is that for some people, and this is often absolutely unrelated to the performance of pleasure that you see on screen, but there can be real pleasures in the work. Um, sometimes those are sexual and sometimes those are camaraderie, you know, friendship with other workers the pleasure of creative performance, uh, the pleasure of being watched. I mean, that, that that can matter. But in terms of the sexual pleasure piece, I always return to this quote from Connor Habib, who features really centrally in the book, who um, in a really in the most gentle way was kind of bringing me up short on my initial refusal to, to think about these questions. And he said, you know, I get to give and receive pleasure every day, which makes this different. It makes it different from straight mainstream or non-sex work work in that. And I'm quoting him again here that that is giving and receiving misery. And for some people, there's plenty of misery to be had in porn too, more likely everyday tedium. But for a lot of folks, the pleasure piece is a huge part of the workday. And I came to understand that as a working condition on its own terms. I'm speaking with Heather Berg, author of Porn Work, published by the University of North Carolina Press. 
You quote one performer, I believe a male performer, saying he fell in and out of love a thousand times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was really charming. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that's, that's something that you know a lot of critics would not uh, even um, imagine. No, no, that's Herschel Savage, who was in uh, Debbie Does Dallas and, uh, yeah, hundreds of other films. And, and I found that such a charming moment. And again, this is at this moment in our conversation where he was kind of gently pushing back on some of the language that I was using. So I had been talking about this in just kind of very meat and potatoes terms, like thinking about the skill or, you know, how do you manage emotions? And he's like, you know, <laughs> there's actually something more, you know, more complicated and more messy, but also sometimes more tender going on here. And it's not just for the boss and it's not just for the consumer. An experience you wouldn't have as a fry cook. Right. But also I think, and you said at the, the top of your question here, that th these aren't questions we ask of other workers. And I wonder if maybe we should. And I'm, and I'm in really interested in workplace sabotage in general and, and the kind of daily wave that workers rest back some pleasure. So I, you know, I hope that, I hope that fry cooks are finding that too, whether that's sexual or not, or, or pilfering food, whatever, messing with the food. Um, but these these acts of play at work, I think, you know, have a huge impact on on what it feels like to get through a shift. What about the distinction between like cool, hip, alternative uh, feminist porn and a more mainstream kind? Is that a fruitful distinction to make? Yeah, well, I think uh, I think probably listeners can tell in the tone of your question and and certainly in, in how I'll answer it that I don't think it is. And I'm guessing maybe that you don't either. Um, but... No, I thought that was a very interesting point you made. So I wanted okay. to bring it out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I too would maybe give scare quotes around the the hip, ethical feminist and queer. For me, you know, the distinction matters insofar as the representational politics can be different, and that matters for some consumers. It also really does matter for some performers who get into sex work, yes, to make a living, but like all of us, make choices about the kinds of work that they do that are in line with their politics. Um, and for some people showing queer love, uh, showing different bodies, different storylines matters. And I don't want to pretend that that's, that that's not true. Um, in terms of everyday working conditions, in terms of pay, um, the length of a shoot, the kinds of control that you have over what a scene looks like, those labels can mean more for marketing than they can for, for actually experiencing the work on the ground. And on the other hand, one place, unfortunately, where, where those marks of distinction really do make a difference is that people in self-defined ethical porn, queer and feminist porn, often make a lot less. So I liken it often to, you know, to working at a nonprofit. There's this sense, or, or in academia, really, there's this sense that if you're doing work that is politically motivated, that you'll get paid less for it. Speaking of academia, I liked your conversation <laughs> describing being an adjunct uh, to a performer. It's like, you know, just quit. <laughs> right. Yeah. She just thought it, I was just letting myself be exploited in such an extreme way. Also, there's, there's danger with the, the cool, hip, feminist alternative porn. Doing what you love can be a sinister thing as well as it can be, you know, a liberating thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, and I think where I come down in the book is that it's both, of course. And and one thing that I want to push back on in terms of the, the broader discourse and creative labor in particular is this tendency, I think, to to read that as a kind of gotcha, you know, the sense that people enter into work that they love in order to escape alienation. Alienation finds them in new ways. And and so there's sometimes a sense in, in the writing that people were stupid to, to try to escape it in the first place. And for me, that's not at all true. Yeah, I'm interested in the desire to escape, even if the escape is limited on the other side. Now, we touched on this a little bit with the pay scale on alternative porn, um, but um, this is an industry with enormous uh, hierarchies uh, of race and sex, right? I mean, even perhaps even starker than the, uh, the non-porn world. I don't know that I would say they're starker. I mean, if you look at the numbers um, uh, in terms of, of racist pay inequality in civilian or straight work, those inequalities are, are absolutely marked. And, and in some ways, you have a little more room to maneuver in porn because you can self-produce, you know, which isn't true in, uh, again, you know, say retail work. But, but yeah, the, the, what that looks like in porn is that you could be doing exactly the same job 
as someone else, even on the same set and be making less for it. And that obviously has a whole lot of material implications for the kinds of work that people feel pushed to accept for you know, how much people have to work in order to make a living, but it also has a lot of, of psychic and emotional ones. And, and folks talked about what it feels like, for example, as a Black performer to work in a scene, have a sex scene with someone who is being paid not just more than you, but a premium in order to be seen on screen with you. The kind of emotional labor required to pull that off is, is immense. Black performers often fetishize for his or her Blackness. That's right. Uh, but that uh, doesn't uh, uh, result in a pay premium. No. And in fact, one of the rationales for lower pay that, that white and, and frankly, non-black in general, not just white, but the non-black managers, so agents, producers and directors gave me is, you know, it's just it's the market, right? It's never their own racist decision making. But the market is actually fascinated by the, the fetishization of blackness and our quote, urban and interracial content is hugely popular. And this is something that Marie Miller-Young talks a lot about in her book, Taste for Brown Sugar. But there absolutely is a market and people are paying for this content. It's just that the managers in their own way, algorithmic managers to figure out ways to, to pay Black performers less. Now, what about the career path? This is an industry that values youth. You can be old at 30, do performers move on to managerial or production roles? Or yeah, what do people do over time? Is it just something you do temporarily and then move on to something else? Yeah, I mean, that's true for a lot of people. Um, a lot of folks do move on to managerial roles, although that has become in really generative ways disrupted with the move to digital and direct-to-consumer distribution through platforms like OnlyFans. People have longer careers when they're not dependent on the, the kind of sclerotic ideas of, of good old boy agents and producers about what sells. But even prior to that digital turn, the, the kind of transition from babysitter next door to MILF was certainly, uh, I mean, circumscribed, but, but there is a lot of work for folks, especially for women over 30. So in some ways, I think, I think sometimes the ideas about what's called aging out are disproportionate to the realities on the ground. But it's, it's absolutely true that one's type and kind of your place in the market changes quicker here than it would elsewhere, especially for women, less so for men. Now, what about um, state regulation, wage and hour regulation, occupational safety stuff? Is that a good or a bad idea for this industry? In some ways, whether it's a good or a bad idea is, is somewhat moot, I think, for two reasons. One, because most porn performers are not employees, and many don't want to be, um, precisely because of these moves against working under a boss, these moves to, to self-produce. Most people don't want, you know, they'd rather have bosses, no bosses at all than um, bosses better disciplined by the state. And, and obviously, that's an uncomfortable reality for the left, but it's one I think we have to take seriously so there's that. And then another point that I make in the book that I think is, is worth noting is that most wage and hour law for uh, all sorts of working class jobs, especially precarious and contingent ones, is unenforced. So, you know, I think there are, are areas in which the state could be doing a lot better. Absolutely. But but in many cases, it's a kind of an abstract discussion because the, the law is not not enforced in the first place. And again, most performers calculate that they it's not um, a trade-off that makes sense for them to be subservient to a boss in order to maybe gain protection under labor law that is weak and often unenforced. What about class dynamics in this world? Um, this, the, the porn performer uh, is certainly not in a textbook bourgeois proletarian role, right. but neither is that absent. And DIY porn may look like independence, but can also involve a great deal of self-exploitation, you know, having to work around the clock, basically promoting yourself all the time. So how do we think about class in porn, and did it change how you see class more generally? Yeah, it changed a lot for me. I Again, I came in wanting to tell a more traditional Marxist labor history of this industry and thinking about workers as workers and their struggles against bosses. And it just became so clear very quickly that one of performers' best tools for resisting exploitation is to 
release themselves from working class status in the classical sense, which is to say working for a wage under other people. And so if I, if I came into this story and you know, my politics have always been aligned with workers as such, it would have been inappropriate for me to ignore that one of these preferred tactics is to not be a worker, right? Um, so thinking about how to, how to wrestle with that became a really important piece of the project. But yeah, it has all sorts of implications for what solidarities look like in the industry, such as it is for people's ideas, to your last question, for people's ideas about what regulation should look like, and, and also for their own understanding of, of their class location vis-a-vis their comrades, but also their bosses. So the kinds of traditional lines um, don't look the same here. And I, I want to take that seriously as, as an opening um, in addition to something that, that makes class messy here. And do you see any union organizing in the field? If most performers would rather not have a boss than one disciplined by the state, they would also rather not have a boss than one disciplined by collective bargaining. That's not to say that there's not a lot of really vibrant collective action happening here, but it is, and I'll I'll quote um, someone who's not in the book, but who I'm in community with more broadly, Lauren Kiley, who, who talks about the importance of organizing for workers, not against bosses. And I think that's a really crucial frame and really importantly put in this context. So the kinds of organizing that you see, they look like mutual aid, they look like information sharing, but in this moment in the industry's evolution, it's really, there's no one boss against which folks would organize. Instead, Um, this proliferated community of performers, but also self-producers is putting a ton of organizing energy around organizing against hostile policy that's coming not from their bosses, but from the state. And often I think that gets understood from civilian leftists as a kind of libertarian position, um, but I think that's the wrong take. So traditional forms of unionizing Sometimes there are are efforts, um, often civilian leftists grab onto those with a lot of excitement because they're really happy to see forms of organizing that feel familiar to them. But I'm I'm really in favor of of always, you know, meeting people where they're at, which is in this case that that, that those forms of organizing just aren't the priority. I like that use of civilian <laughs> industry jargon. Finally, um what about the issues of what uh, the business press calls work-life balance? I would imagine they're pretty complicated in this world. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a couple of things they'll say there. One, and, and there's definitely a double bind here, but a lot of people get into porn and other sex work in order to grasp at, at some semblance of work-life balance. They then find that undermined in different ways in the industry. But one thing that people say again and again and again is that working a nine to five and certainly working the variable schedules of a lot of um, you know hourly working class jobs is just absolutely incompatible with anything like real work life balance. So that becomes particularly an issue for caretakers, for uh, people with disabilities and chronic illness, for students. You know, but also for people who um, want time to pursue their art or their band or whatever. So the the kind of impossibility of work life balance in a lot of civilian jobs is a huge driver of entrance into the sex industry in the first place. But then you do find, yeah, round the clock work in some ways, um, and also just a kind of obliteration of boundaries between life and work that people figure out all sorts of ways to manage, um, but that can be, you know, really straining, not just in terms of the the kind of day-to-day emotional costs of that, but there are particularly for folks who work out of their homes and who have to very carefully calibrate how much of of their personal lives to reveal to fans, their um, important safety issues at hand as well. So there's these questions of hours, but also these other I think sometimes more amorphous boundaries between working and living. Host Heather Berg, Assistant Professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Washington University in St. Louis, and author of the book Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism, published by the University of North Carolina Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood.
I wish I had this song for last week's interview with the crypto critic Molly White, but I only discovered it the other day, and what a catchy, fun thing it is. It's written by and features Salem Elise, a 22-year-old singer, songwriter, and TikTok sensation from Mill Valley, California, with the assistance of artists only identified as Sad Alex and July the Ginny, in order of appearance. This is I Don't Care About Your Crypto Boy by Salem Elise. Mention NFTs one more time And it's guaranteed when I f***ing tonight You got open sea on your mind When it should be me that you prioritize Trying to get through, but it don't compute Cause you're busy aiming for the moon You think I'm enthused, but I got some news for you I don't care about your crypto Yet. We could be so rich, but I won't take it to the moon if you don't want to come in. I need that fast life, you're making mixtapes. So please enlighten me how I'm so damn delusional, babe. You're a musician, you work at Arby's, that's why I ain't what you say. That was I Don't Care About Your Crypto Boy by Salem Elise. And now a rather radical shift from sex work to academic economics. Mainstream economics in the U.S. from the 1950s through the 1970s was dominated by a battle between two schools of thought. On the center-left was a mainstream form of Keynesianism, which sought to tame the business cycle through government policy and temper the excesses of capitalism, without ever thinking of transcending it, through regulation and a modest welfare state. It was based in two economics departments in Cambridge, Massachusetts, those of Harvard and MIT. On the right was the competing Chicago school centered on that university, with Milton Friedman as its star. As the 1970s progressed, the Massachusetts crew, which my interviewees dubbed the Charles River School, was overtaken by the free marketeers of Chicago. Of course, much of that shift was driven by the changing politics of the era, the rightward moves into Reaganism and Thatcherism, but the two schools were internally organized very differently, which had something to do with their contrasting fates. For a bunch of individualists, the Chicago School was tightly unified and conscious of its legacy, and the Charles River Gang behaved more like the self-interested individuals of the free market textbooks. Here with more are Kevin Young and Leonard Seabrook, co-authors of a paper, along with Lost Folk Henriksen, published in the Socioeconomic Review. Young teaches at UMass and Seabrook at the Copenhagen Business School. Kevin Young and Leonard Seabrook. Before we get into the uh, practices of these two groups, could just... Define the ideological, you know, institutional profile of these two, the Charles River and, and the Chicago crowd. Who uh, were they? What did they represent? Uh, what was their worldview? The Chicago group is most closely associated with what folks now would consider to be kind of neoliberal economics uh, of, the, of the time. They wanted to uh, supplant a Keynesian neoclassical synthesis that was dominant at the time, especially among the Charles River folks. And they wanted to supplant it with more classical uh, liberal ideas about free markets. They advanced a series of new ideas about deregulation. And they also sought to kind of expand uh, economics into previously uncharted territory. And if you think about their work in law and economics and their um, uh, work in basically what amounted to sociology, uh, human capital theory and whatnot. But they're the free market um, folks very much. And they advanced ideas about monetary theory, yeah. like monetarism. They're very much associated with the Mont Pelerin gang, right? Yes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, having said, a clear idea on, on contracts and property rights. Uh, free market economics. Uh, I mean, having sort of an idea of, you know, so economic man as a rational actor. It was a very comprehensive worldview. Uh, they had a, a very ambitious philosophy and they wanted to change the world, right? Absolutely. They had an incredible insurgent morality and meta narrative about how to govern the economy uh, that was very comprehensive. Absolutely. Yeah. And part of that, part of that wasn't just given, part of that was built. They built a lot of new ideas from these kind of classical liberal foundations. And as I said, expanded economics into the into you know new domains of law, sociology, how to think about families, how to think about discrimination, in addition to you know how to think about the monetary system and and how we want the state to act generically. And sort of interesting also in that they were, I mean, sort of seen 
you know, sort of as underdogs by themselves. I mean, like we've seen as kind of outsiders and um, not as victims, but sort of underdogs and outsiders in the system. So they were sort of, I mean, like in part, very kind of active in trying to mobilize based on their underdog status. And whereas the Charles River crew, Harvard, MIT, were very much the establishment in the field, but also um, in politics more generally, right? Absolutely. They're very kind of ensconced in the, the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, of course. A lot of them were folks on the, the Council of Economic Advisors. Samuelson was writing the, you know, the dominant post-war American textbook on economics from MIT, of course. So, you know, there's a wonderful line that he had. I can't paraphrase it exactly, but uh, once you get your ideas into the textbooks, you become practically immortal. And that must have been, you know, the kind of sense, uh, especially, you know, by by the 60s that uh, a lot of these folks uh, had in many ways. The Chicago folks they're very well aware of this, and they sought to supplant it by their uh, their particular methods. The kind of Keynesianism they practiced, though, was not the Keynesianism of Keynes. Um, and whatever somewhat radical content had been in Keynes originally was largely drained uh, from the doctrine by the time uh, the Charles River gang were running the world with it. Absolutely. I mean, the Charles River folks had moderated um, many aspects of the, the earlier Keynesian message, some of them borrowed much more heavily from earlier uh, institutionalist ideas as well. You know, John Kenneth Galbraith and, and uh, Paul Samuelson are very different creatures in terms of how they understand the economy, even though they both had at various times a kind of Keynesian inflection in their work. They're very different at the same time. Yeah. These two groups had a very different approach to uh, academic practice, right? Yeah, describe um, uh, how uh, Chicago organized itself in contrast with the, the Charles River crew. I think in terms of what we argue, argue in the papers is pretty accurate. You know, sort of in terms, of, I mean, they, they they were pretty isolated in terms of sort of places, physically, like, fairly isolated. And and there is a quote we have in the paper about it being sort of like a um, a kind of environment, like a, a monastery. You know, so sort of, I mean, and they were pretty isolated, um, and in part by intent, I mean, linked linked to their own theories and their own body of of uh, science, and in part to finance also in Chicago. But really, really sort of seen as being sort of a separate group and had this, had like a, a pretty active idea in terms of having sort of a strong doctrine in terms of how they taught their students. I mean, a fairly interesting aspect for us in the paper, you know, I mean, they don't really argue about principles in the way that you would find kind of in left groups. Left groups, normally what we would find, you know, I mean, also now is that they tend to fracture over principles, whereas I mean, this group had some key principles that they, they agreed to, and they would argue on theory and around theory, theory and ideas inside the group in a very kind of active yeah. way. Yeah. So, I mean, the students, when they came in, were... Some of them were social democrats. Yeah, yeah I was struck by that. They didn't necessarily enter. They didn't gravitate to uh, Chicago because it was the Vatican of that style of economics, but uh, they ended up that way. They exited that way. Yes, yeah. they, this machinery that we describe in the paper you know, kind of produced a lot of converts. Yeah, um, yeah. And it, you know, it wasn't just through charisma of uh, you know, George Stigler and Milton Friedman, but there's a whole kind of community oriented around certain principles um, that was kind of very much baked into the graduate curriculum. And one of the first things that Friedman did when he came in was rewrite some of the rules for graduate students to make sure that everybody studied uh, price theory and we could always you know refer to that no matter what different directions they went uh, went into into their work later on they, they still had price theory and that certain kind of neoclassical ideas that they could always return to so there's like a process as Len was saying of kind of intensive in-group socialization here at Chicago yeah there was a debate but it was very much debate within a doctrine they were kind of bloodthirsty with one another at their seminars but always um, within a given doctrine. And that prepared them very well and prepared their students very well for all these battles that they had within the profession, which as Morovsky or someone else, uh, you know, uh, pointed out that people like Friedman were, you know, more akin to, you know, ruthless street fighters, whereas on the Charles River side of things, there's more, as it were, gentlemanly conduct uh, in intellectual matters. Now, was it because of their position as being dominant in, in the world not merely of economics, but also politically. Um, it, was it that dominance that made them complacent, or is there not a coherent philosophy at all behind everything? How do you account for this different culture of these two um, schools? In terms of what's happening at Harvard and MIT, I mean, MIT is becoming more kind of math-driven in terms of how they were operating. Harvard is more complacent, I think, in terms of how they were behaving as well. As they grouped together, uh, their sort of shorthand here would be that they were they were behaving in a, in a sort of um, piecemeal and sort of incremental scientific way. 
And in Chicago, you have sort of like like, like I mean, really sort of a, a strong doctrine and and sort of a strong faith. The change in Chicago, there's kind of um intense group and in how they sort of act, how they behave and act and are socialized. And having sort of a clear doctrine and sort of a clear faith almost, and having science on top of that, is more effective. I was a right winger in my early days in college, early seventies, and uh, I recall the feeling there weren't very many of us. Yale's party of the right, there were about a dozen of us. We felt very besieged, uh, but very um, righteous. And I would guess that some of that culture was felt in Chicago, very isolated, fighting a, what we thought was a losing battle against the, the, the victory of liberalism, but also with this sense of being righteous uh, and on a mission, almost divinely inspired mission. Yeah, and I, and I, and I know some other uh, conversations on your show have talked about that in terms of the contemporary right and, and left in the United States. There's, a, there's an eerie parallel there. Their moral universes were not difficult to understand, and they're extremely passionate about it, whereas some of the Charles River folks were Mm -hmm. defending established doctrine in some ways, right? Or like, you know, defending what government policy was doing in in, in the Great Society or or many other projects at the time. That affected the tone in many ways, right? That's the voice of Kevin Young. We're listening to him and Leonard Seabrook, co-authors of a paper on the contrasting organizational styles of the Chicago and Cambridge schools of economic thought. You study networks among these two schools. What do the networks look like? What, what exactly did you study and what did you trace out? One of the networks we built was uh, an acknowledgement network. We took all the papers that all these different academics uh, wrote on either side of these, this sort of big debate and this kind of intellectual rivalry. And we took all the articles of their students and we looked at um, who gets cited, not in the, in the references, but in the acknowledgement section. So who saw the paper earlier on that got thanked and helped with the paper? And when we build these acknowledgement networks, we can use some tools from network science to measure social dynamics among these different groups of economists. One key measure that we reported on in the paper was that the level of reciprocity among the Chicago folks was much, much higher over the long term. It it started out about the same, but it got much, much higher as the 60s progressed into into 1980. And what that means is that uh, they were helping each other. This is sort of evidence of their internal socialization. And they're helping each other across generations. They were working on each other's craft together. And this is in, in, in strong contrast to the, the Charles River folks. Either you look just at within Harvard and just within MIT, but if you group them all together, there's just much less socialization and, and helping within, within the group, whereas Chicago had a lot of it. And Chicago also was very careful about nurturing is a funny word to use with these people, but hey, there was some degree of nurturance here with the graduate students. They really were uh, careful at uh, developing um, younger talent and thinking of the longer term. And the Charles River gang did not do this. Yeah. I mean, to the point where John Kenneth Galbraith was certainly one of the most famous economists and prominent economists in, 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 the, in the world, certainly at, at the level of popular economics and, and big public policy discussions had his own yeah, uh, uh, TV show for a while, but didn't have many students. Folks like Friedman had many, many uh, students. We actually went ahead and, and collected a lot of these folks' reference letters, and they were quite ruthless in, in promoting their students uh, far and wide. Um, but there's just, there's just more energy toward that effort in the Chicago folks. What ends up happening, that, that nurturing that you described, it leads to a situation where in the early 1960s, Folks at Harvard and MIT, students uh, that that had just recently graduated from the program, they were citing their profs at Harvard and MIT much more than Chicago uh, students were citing their their profs, right? But over time, especially into the 70s, Chicago completely overtakes Harvard and MIT in terms of this practice, whereby students are uh, citing their own original professors more and more. And this kind of thing arguably really matters in academia, right? Because, you know, citation practices Mm. are kind of how we acknowledge one one another and kind of give energy to certain ideas over others. That's another uh, sort of phenomenon we picked up. But it's also an index of social ties. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yes. 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 
Now, it's interesting, that the chronology of this, because uh, the 60s were the high watermark of that kind of Keynesian consensus. But then by the 70s, when we start seeing stagflation, crisis in the field, the rise of Milton Friedman, what, he became president of the AEA in, what, 76 or something like that? Um, this was when the, when the field was really undergoing transformation. So as they're having this real-world crisis, plus uh, the reorganization at the real-world level, um, they were also showing more internal coherence and solidarity. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's clearly a kind of very convenient opportunity structure for, for them to make a lot of their important professional moves in the 70s. But exactly, you're exactly right. They were coherent and they were able to kind of propagate and spread, uh, spread across uh, generations in a way that was super useful to this period of stagflation. And also, obviously, debate and dissensus within economics generally in the 70s. There's all kinds of stuff going on, obviously, by the, by the mid and late 70s. Could you say that there was anything of a coherent worldview around the Charles River crew other than just tweaks to the status quo? Is there some broad philosophy, worldview that united them in, in any way other than their association with these two prestigious departments? One thing that they tended to emphasize, obviously, just in contrast to Chicago, was uh, there, there are certainly more akin to emphasize a market failure over government failure. Uh, and that's one that, that's one key thing. The kind of appetite for government intervention and the appetite for government regulation is much, much higher. And they have arguably a kind of theory of the state, which is much more generous in terms of, you know, what what the state can do for social welfare through various economic interventions than the Chicago folks uh, uh, had as well. But I mean, you're, you're hitting on something here already is that is that the kind of Keynesian neoclassical synthesis had many different variants, even during the kind of high watermark of this tradition. And um, it's not like they could all reach to the general theory, uh, you know, for certain kinds of answers in a way that was always going to lead to sort of uh, social cohesion. So there was differences among them intellectually. But, we, you know, we, sh- we shouldn't also overemphasize uh, the, the fact, you know, the idea that Chicago folks were on the same page about certain things. They also had all kinds of, uh, you know, ruthless debates uh, among one another. But they did, as you, as you hinted at, they did kind of have kind of common principles down to the kind of microeconomic level. So like, you know, down to the level of human behavior and what markets are, how information works. And the Charles River folks didn't quite have that together. The Chicago people had a vision of how to understand the world, right? So you have Gary Becker talking about marriage at the same time. Yeah. Got yeah. Others talking about the financial markets. Um, they had a finger in many, many pies. Yeah. George Stigler really kind of uh, promoted uh, and wrote, wrote about, as I'm sure you know, uh, the idea of economics imperialism, not the economics of imperialism, <laughs> uh, but economics as an imperial social science. Yeah. And they they were remarkably successful in this regard as well. I mean, if you think of how public policy was transformed through folks like uh, Peltzman and Stigler how we think about regulatory capture and the nature of the state. Think of like James Buchanan and folks like that coming out of Chicago and the whole public choice tradition. And then Gary Becker and other people he attached to at Columbia, like Jacob Mincer, advanced this idea of human capital that transformed the way people thought about labor markets, about Mm -hmm. discrimination. And then, of course, there's the other branches related to efficient markets and finance and monetary theory at large. How much of this coherence in the Chicago circle was a result of their association with a broader political movement? I mean, we mentioned Mont Pelerin. There's also movement conservatism that was growing at that time. How much was that a factor? I mean, a fairly important factor, we think, you know, sort of in the paper, it's really sort of important on this sort of aim to aim behavior. The important trend for us in terms of what we find in the paper is that, I mean, the, I mean, the forms of cohesion that they have in the early period before stagflation and before, you know, Thatcherism, I mean, Reaganism all yeah, happened. Yeah, I mean, that, that's all later. So, I mean, it's sort of our story. On cohesion is really sort of important in being prior prior to the external effects in terms of yeah. what's happening with Thatcher and you know and 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 uh, similar. And, and Mont Pelerin were important in in kind of giving these folks energy and all kinds of transnational connections. Yeah. Uh, in in affirming certain beliefs, of course, but also you know working out ideas that would be you know akin to uh, strategy, uh, connecting with others uh, transnationally. The story of the neoliberal ascent is not just the story of the Mont Pelerin Society, we think. There's also something very special going on with uh, a particular department at a particular university (laughs) as well, and their kind of internal practices. They got energy from the Mont Pelerin Society. They helped them project a lot of their ideas 
in various places. Mm-hmm. But you know what was going on in the department and how it functioned was uh, uh, probably a bit more key. And then you know they connected to the conservative movement more generally. Of course, it's in the seventies that more and more connections to think tanks start to emerge. But you know to a certain extent, this is a period where the right doesn't have the conservative movement in the U.S doesn't have all of its, uh, it doesn't have its house in order exactly. They helped advance, I think, that the conservative movement in the United States more than the conservative movement uh, helped them. The ascendant conservatism that we see emerge in the very late 70s and early 80s, of course, also kind of fuses with a kind of religious conservatism in the U.S., you know, sort of plus some of these, some of these neoliberal economic ideas. The Chicago economists didn't didn't have uh, anything to do at all with that fusion, but they they provided obviously the key ingredients and the key kind of legitimacy to the economic program that was uh, was very important. Yeah. Now, do we have anything analogous going on today? I mean, what's the situation in Chicago like? Is it still a disciplined school of thought, or has it uh, become less coherent? And is there any kind of new formation that uh, might uh, be rivaling uh, the existing power structure in the same way that Chicago did fifty years ago? Not that I know of. <laughs> uh, there's some amazing uh, economics departments uh, um, out there. I mean, Chicago has become more pluralistic than it was in many ways. My contemporary understanding of, of that department is less strong than the kind of historical understanding. But there's, you know, there's obviously all kinds of different intellectual movements within uh, economics, some of which have been more successful than others. But I don't think you can point to the same kind of cohesive doctrinaire energy and moral uh, certainty. Yeah. Uh, you know, like who would, who would I, I'm interested in what, what you might think, Doug, um, the, the kind of movement of uh, the behavioralists in, in economics, uh, you think of like the nudgers and folks like that, or folks bringing in behavioral psychology in, you know, they've had some important successes. They've gotten a lot of their ideas sort of translated into whole government programs and departments and stuff, but it's not the same kind of uh, movement and, and, and effort. And of course there's. Yeah. It's not very inspiring nor transformative. <laughs> right. Uh, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's much more modest in its right. expectation. One's not going to go to the barricades for Cass Sunstein. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those were Kevin Young and Leonard Seabrook, co-authors of a paper along with Las Folk Henriksen, Intellectual Rivalry in American Economics, Intergenerational Social Cohesion, and the Rise of the Chicago School, published in the Socioeconomic Review. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a somewhat topical song, despite being from 1995, by Six Finger Satellite, Simeon Fever. Till next week, bye. Doctor, there's trouble in the monkey house. What is it, Mr. Marburg? I think it's... Simeon fever, 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 Simeon fever